Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Typhoid Mary. But first, your true crime headlines. In Utah, the double murder conviction of death row inmate Vaughn Lester Taylor has been vacated due to ineffective counsel at his trial nearly 30 years ago. Three days before Christmas in 1990, Taylor and another man, Edward Deli, broke into a vacant cabin in the mountains east of Salt Lake City and terrorized a family of five, killing two members of the Teed family and injuring a third. In 1991, Taylor accepted a plea deal under which he pled guilty to two counts of murder in exchange for eight lesser charges against him being dropped. The deal did not take the death penalty off the table, and Taylor was sentenced to death. Deli, his co-conspirator, did not accept a deal and chose to go to trial. A jury convicted him of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. In the 37-page decision, U.S. District Judge Tina Campbell wrote that Taylor's attorney, Elliot Levine, offered inexcusably uninformed advice to his client, which exposed him to the possibility of execution. Levine, whose Utah State Bar certification is currently suspended, failed to hire or consult experts for Taylor's death penalty trial, resulting in what the court determined was a miscarriage of justice. One of the two men convicted of the 1993 murder of James Jordan Sr., father of NBA legend Michael Jordan, is being considered for parole. James Jordan was shot and killed as he slept in his car at a North Carolina rest stop. His body was dumped off a bridge and recovered 11 days later, and two men were convicted of first-degree murder and armed robbery for the crime. Each of them received a life sentence. One of those men, Larry Demery, is now being considered for parole as part of North Carolina's Mutual Agreement Parole Program, which the state's Department of Public Health describes as a scholastic and vocational program, quote, designed to prepare selected inmates for release through structured activities. The state's current sentencing law eliminates parole for serious crimes committed after October 1, 1994. But since Demery was sentenced under previous sentencing guidelines, he would still be eligible. An Austin man was found guilty of killing his 19-year-old neighbor during an argument over some fireworks on the 4th of July. 19-year-old Devante Ortiz was setting off fireworks with friends at his apartment complex around 1 a.m. His neighbor, Jason Roach, came outside and told them to stop. He then returned to his apartment. Later, when Ortiz and his friends set off more fireworks, Roach and his elderly disabled father returned to confront Ortiz again. During the confrontation, Ortiz pushed Roach's father to the ground and Roche immediately turned and fired one shot at his neighbor, piercing Ortiz's rib and killing him. Roche claimed that he feared for his father's safety and fired in self-defense. The jury did not agree, finding him guilty of Ortiz's murder. Now, 
As the trial moves to the sentencing phase, jurors must further decide if Roche acted in the heat of passion, which would shrink his possible sentence from 5 to 99 years down to a possible 2 to 20 years. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Typhoid Mary. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. In the late 19th and early 20th century, typhoid fever caused by a bacterium called Salmonella typhi killed one in 10 of its victims. In New York City alone, in 1906, there were 3,467 confirmed cases of typhoid, of which 639 died. Because the contagion spread through contaminated food and water, typhoid was generally considered a disease of the poor. But occasionally, smaller outbreaks would crop up in healthy, affluent communities, defying explanation. It was there in New York during the summer of 1906 that one such anomalous outbreak emerged at a rented summer home on Oyster Bay, Long Island. By late August, half of the people in the house were sick with typhoid fever. Following the outbreak, the owner of the summer house, Mrs. George Thompson, hired sanitary engineer and typhoid expert, George Soper, to investigate what caused the outbreak. The place had been rented to a New York banker, General William Henry Warren, who had occupied it with his family of three and seven servants for the summer months, recalled Sober. Late in August, an explosion of typhoid had occurred, in which six of the 11 persons in the household were taken sick. The epidemic had been studied immediately after it occurred by persons who were regarded as experts, and there were a number of typewritten reports about it. But the cause had not been positively ascertained, it was thought by the owner that unless the mystery could be cleared up, it would be impossible to find tenants for the upcoming season. At first, Soper believed that the outbreak was caused by a batch of contaminated clams, until he realized that some of the victims hadn't eaten them. George Soper thoroughly examined the property for contamination, rechecking everything that had previously been tested, hoping to find what his predecessors had overlooked. He tested the cesspool and the privy, the well, the overhead water tank, the food supplies in the pantry, the manure used to fertilize the lawn, and even the sanitary conditions at the neighbor's house, but found nothing. The only other possibility was a human carrier. George Soper was aware of the possibility of seemingly recovered patients continuing to be contagious for several weeks following an illness. But had anyone in the house been recently recovered from typhoid? As early as 1903, researchers in Germany had documented cases of seemingly healthy people carrying typhoid in their bodies and shedding it in their urine and feces, spreading the contagion 
but no such healthy carriers had ever been documented in the United States. Having undertaken to see if there had been any carriers in the Oyster Bay house before the outbreak occurred, Soper recalled, I soon came, through the process of exclusion, to the cook. But where was she? She had left soon after the epidemic, and that event had occurred over six months ago. I tried to find out everything I could about her, but there was not much to learn. Mrs. Warren said she was a good, plain cook. Her wages were $45 a month, and she had been obtained from Mrs. Stricker's. Stricker's was a well-known employment agency on 28th Street. The cook had not fraternized with the other servants, and they knew little about her. She was not particularly clean. Her name was Mary Mallon. The 40-year-old cook had come to work at the Oyster Bay house on August 4th. The first person fell ill soon after, on August 27th, and the last on September 3rd. George Soper narrowed down the period of infection to just seven days, and soon even pinpointed which meal it was that had infected the victims. Where there are so many servants, there is little food that a cook handles which is not subsequently raised to a temperature sufficient to make it harmless, George Soper explained. I found, however, that on a certain Sunday there was a dessert which Mary prepared and of which everybody present was extremely fond. This was ice cream with fresh peaches cut up and frozen in it. I suppose no better way could be found for a cook to cleanse her hands of microbes and infect a family. George Soper's next stop was Stricker's employment agency. He explained the situation and requested Mary Mallon's employment history. But it turned out that Mary was a difficult woman to find. I obtained all the help that could be given there, but it was not very much, Soper recalled. Mary appeared to be a person who moved about a good deal. She did not remain long in any situation. She did not get all her situations through one agency, or any agency for that matter. Sometimes they came through advertisements. In the process of tracking her down, Soper spoke with several of Mary's former employers and learned that as she had moved from job to job over the years, Mary had left a trail behind her of at least seven household typhoid epidemics. Each tragic outbreak played out the same way, emerging seemingly out of nowhere and sweeping through the family, its source never determined, and the cook never suspected. In 1900, Mary was working in a summer house when a young man came to visit. Ten days later, he came down with typhoid. It was assumed at the time that the young man must have contracted the disease during a visit to East Hampton, which was close to an army camp where typhoid was prevalent. The following year, Mary lived with a family in New York City. On December 9, 1901, the laundress was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital with typhoid, but the case was never investigated. 
In 1902, Mary worked in the Dark Harbor, Maine summer home of Coleman Drayton, a wealthy New York lawyer. On June 17th, two weeks after her arrival, the first case of typhoid occurred. Seven days later, a second person fell ill. Two days after that, another. Of the nine people in the household, seven contracted typhoid, leaving only Mary Mallon and Mr. Drayton standing. Drayton had contracted typhoid years before, and he was immune. Mr. Drayton and Mary Mallon worked side by side, taking care of the sick and attending to all the manifold tasks which illness brings upon a family, Soper recalled. Mr. Drayton told me that when it was over, he had been so grateful to Mary for all the help she had given him that he rewarded her with $50 in addition to her full wages. In 1904, Mary struck again, this time in the household of Mr. Henry Gilsey at Sands Point, Long Island. Mary arrived on June 1st. On June 8th, the laundress fell ill. Then, in just three weeks, the gardener fell ill, then the butler's wife, followed last by her sister. This time the typhoid only struck the servants, who lived in a house separate from the family. The outbreak was investigated by Dr. R. L. Wilson, the superintendent of hospitals for communicable diseases of the New York City Department of Health. Dr. Wilson believed that the laundress must have become infected and brought the disease into the servant's house. But he never found an explanation for how exactly it happened. In March of 1907, after a four-month search, George Soper finally found Mary Mallon. She was five feet six inches tall, a blonde with clear blue eyes, a healthy color and a somewhat determined mouth and jaw. Mary had a good figure and might have been called athletic had she not been a little too heavy, George Soper remarked. Nothing was so distinctive about her as her walk, unless it was her mind. The two had a peculiarity in common. Mary walked more like a man than a woman, and her mind had a distinctly masculine character also. Mary was working as a cook in an old-fashioned high-stoop house on Park Avenue on the west side, two doors above a church at 60th Street. The laundress had recently been taken to the Presbyterian Hospital with typhoid fever, and the only child of the family, a lovely daughter, was dying of it. George Soper carefully explained to Mary that he had good reason to suspect that she was unwittingly spreading typhoid and asked her for specimens of her urine, stool, and blood to test for the disease at no cost to her. Soper assured Mary that the city would pay for her medical treatment if she needed it. He would see to it. It did not take Mary long to react to this suggestion, Soper recalled. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall, through the tall iron gate, 
out through the area and so to the sidewalk. I felt rather lucky to escape. Apparently, Mary did not understand that I wanted to help her. But George Soper knew that Mary Mallon was the cause of the outbreaks, and he didn't need to test her urine or stool to prove it. Just how she did it, I didn't know. I wanted to find out, he said. I felt a good deal of responsibility about the case. Under suitable conditions, Mary might precipitate a great epidemic. Mary Mallon was what is now known as an asymptomatic carrier. That is, a person who has been infected with the pathogen, but displays no signs or symptoms. This is different from other seemingly healthy carriers of disease. An incubatory carrier, for example, unknowingly infects others before the onset of their own symptoms. Convalescent carriers, as was initially suspected in the Oyster Bay case, spread disease following a period of illness, thinking themselves to be cured, but unknowingly still contagious. But Mary was different. Asymptomatic carriers never exhibit signs or symptoms, yet spread the disease, sometimes as in Mary's case, for years, as it lays dormant in their system. The next day, Soper found Mary Mallon again, this time at a boarding house on 3rd Avenue that he described as a place of dirt and disorder. Soper learned that Mary was spending her evenings with a disreputable-looking man who had a room at the top floor and to whom she was taking food. Soper got to know the man, who did his business in a saloon on the corner. He took me to see his room, Soper said. I should not care to see another like it. It was not improved by the presence of a large dog, of which Mary was said to be fond. George Soper waited one evening for Mary at the top of the stairs, and tried again to explain that although she wasn't ill, Mary was carrying and spreading the germs that caused typhoid. Mary was angry at the unexpected sight of me, and although I recited some well-considered speeches committed to memory in advance to make sure she understood what I meant, and that I meant her no harm, I could do nothing with her. Mary angrily denied that she had ever had typhoid. Typhoid fever was everywhere, she argued, and her employers had suffered no more cases than anyone else in the city. She was in perfect health, and was outraged at the accusation. George Soper would have to try again. But George knew that he had to act quickly. Mary would soon be leaving her job on Park Avenue, and when she did, she would disappear into the city again, spreading typhoid fever wherever she went until he could track her down once more. He decided to enlist the help of a higher authority. George Soper brought the case to the attention of Commissioner Thomas Darlington and Dr. Herman M. Biggs, medical officer of the New York City Health Department. 
he recommended that Mary Mallon be taken into custody immediately. I called Mary a living culture tube and chronic typhoid germ producer. I said she was a proved menace to the community. It was impossible to deal with her in a reasonable and peaceful way. And if the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force, and plenty of it. On March 19th, Inspector Dr. S. Josephine Baker paid Mary Mallon a visit. Mary slammed the door in her face. The next morning, a health department ambulance and a detachment of police arrived to arrest Mary Mallon. Two policemen were carefully positioned so that Mary couldn't escape, and another accompanied Dr. Baker to the door. They rang the bell. Mary opened the door. When Mary saw Dr. Baker and the police, she tried to quickly shut it, but the policeman wedged his foot in the door. Mary ran back into the kitchen and disappeared. The house was swiftly searched and the other servants questioned, but Mary was nowhere to be found. Then, Dr. Baker looked out a back window. A chair had been drawn up beside the high fence which separated the property from the adjoining. The ground was covered with snow and footprints in it led from the house to the chair. It took over three hours to find Mary Mallon. She fought and struggled and cursed, said Dr. Baker. I tried to explain to her that I only wanted the specimens and that then she could go back home. She again refused, and I told the policeman to pick her up and put her in the ambulance. This we did, and the ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one. In custody, Mary Mallon's stool tested positive for typhoid. But she remained convinced that she was perfectly healthy. A few weeks after her capture, George Soper visited Mary in the isolation ward at Willard Parker Hospital. When arrested, she was regarded as a dangerous and unreliable person who might try to escape if given the chance. George Soper explained. So she was locked up. It was not an attractive or particularly comfortable room, and there was no reason why a strong, active woman of 40 who felt herself to be in perfect health should be contented with it, and Mary Mallon was not. The room with its white walls and ceiling and floor, the white bed, and the white bathrobe which Mary was wearing gave the curiously healthy and fearfully angry-looking person a startling appearance. Mary, George said, I've come to talk with you and see if between us we cannot get you out of here. When I have asked you to help me before, you have refused, and when others have asked you, you have refused them also. You would not be where you are now if you had not been so obstinate. So throw off your wrong-headed idea and be reasonable. Nobody wants to harm you. 
You say you have never caused a case of typhoid, but I know you have done so. Nobody thinks you've done it purposefully, but you have done it just the same. Many people have been made sick and have suffered a great deal. Some have died. You refused to give specimens, which would help to clear up the trouble. So you were arrested and brought here, and the specimens taken in spite of your resistance. They proved what I charged. Now you must surely see how mistaken you were. Don't you acknowledge it? Mary stared at George, motionless, saying nothing. Well, George went on, I will tell you how you do it. When you go to the toilet, the germs which grow within your body get upon your fingers, and when you handle food in cooking, they get on the food. People who eat this swallow the germs and get sick. If you would wash your hands after leaving the toilet and before cooking, there might be no trouble. You don't keep your hands clean enough. Mary just sat, still motionless, glaring. George continued, The germs are probably growing in your gallbladder. The best way to get rid of them is to get rid of the gallbladder. You don't need a gallbladder any more than you need an appendix. There are many people living without them. Mary, I don't know how long the Department of Health intends to keep you here, I believe that depends partly on you. I can help you. George Soper pleaded with Mary to cooperate, promising that he would do everything in his power to get her out as quickly as possible. He even promised her that he would write a book about her case, not mentioning her name, and give her all of the profits. If only she would just answer his questions. As I finished with my back there against the door, Mary rose. She pulled her bathrobe about her and, not taking her eyes off of mine, slowly opened the door of her toilet and vanished within. The door slammed. George Soper took that as a no from Mary Mallon and left. He did go ahead and publish her story in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The strange case attracted so much attention that the media dubbed Malin Typhoid Mary, a label that not only followed her for the rest of her life, but today, over a century later, is bestowed upon anyone who spreads disease through ignorance or malice. Now that her illness was confirmed, Typhoid Mary was moved to quarantine at Riverside Hospital to live in isolation on North Brother Island. During Mary's time in quarantine, the hospital had attempted to treat her, but nothing seemed to remove the bacterial population from her body. Without the gallbladder surgery, Mary was destined to remain an asymptomatic carrier. Her quarters there on the island were likely the nicest accommodations Mary Mallon had ever lived in. It was a cottage 
originally built for the hospital's superintendent of nurses, with a living room, a kitchen, and a bathroom equipped with gas, electricity, and modern plumbing. But for Mary, it was a gilded cage. The hospital delivered her food, and she cooked and ate alone for nearly three years. In 1909, Mary Mallon attempted to sue for release on the grounds that she had been denied due process of law. Mary was, after all, a prisoner who had never been charged with a crime. However, the law did allow the health department to quarantine people in situations like Mary Mallon's, when the risk of spreading a deadly infection to the rest of the population was too great. In June of 1909, the height of Mary's quarantine, she penned a six-page, hand-scrawled letter to the Board of Health. In reply to Dr. Park of the Board of Health, I will state that I am not segregated with the typhoid patients. There is nobody on this island that has typhoid. There was never any effort by the Board Authority to do anything for me excepting to cast me on the island and keep me a prisoner without being sick nor needing medical treatment. When I first came here, they took two blood cultures, and feces went down three times per week, say Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, respectively, until the latter part of June. After that, they only got the feces once a week, which was on Wednesday. Now they have given me a record for nearly a year for three times a week. When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble, my eyes began to twitch, and the left eyelid became paralyzed and would not move. It remained in that condition for six months. There was an eye specialist who visited the island three or four times a week. He was never asked to visit me. I did not even get a cover for my eye. I had to hold my hand on it whilst going about and at night tie a bandage on it. In December, when Dr. Wilson took charge, he came to me and I told him about it. He said that was news to him and that he would send me his electric battery, but he never sent it. However, my eye got better thanks to the Almighty God and in spite of the medical staff. Dr. Wilson ordered me Eurotropin. I got that on and off for a year. Sometimes they had it and sometimes they did not. I took the Eurotropin for about three months all told during the whole year. If I should have continued it, it would certainly have killed me for it was very severe. Everyone knows who is acquainted in any kind of medicine that it is used for kidney trouble. When in January 1908, they were about to discharge me, when the resident physician came to me and asked me where I was going when I got out of here, naturally I said to New York, so there was a stop put to my getting out of here. Then the supervising nurse told me I was a hopeless case, and if I'd write to Dr. Darlington and tell him that I'd go to my sisters in Connecticut. Now, I have no sister in that state, nor any other in the U.S. Then in April, a friend of mine went to Dr. Darlington and asked him when I was to get away. He replied, that woman is all right now, and she is a very expensive woman, but I cannot let her go myself. The board has to sit. Come around Saturday. When he did, Dr. Darlington told this man, I've nothing more to do with this woman. Go to Dr. Studeford. 
He went to that doctor, and he said, "I cannot let that woman go." And all the people that she gave the typhoid to, and so many deaths occurred in the families she was with. Doctor Stutterford said to this man, "Go and ask Mary Mallon, and avail her to have an operation performed, to have her gallbladder removed. I'll have the best surgeon in town do the cutting." I said, "No, no knife will be put on me." I've nothing the matter with my gallbladder. Doctor Wilson asked me the very same question. I told him no. Then he replied, "It might not do you any good." Also, the supervising nurse asked me to have an operation performed. I also told her no, and she made this remark: "Would it not be better for you to have it done than remain here?" I told her no. There was a visiting doctor who came here in October. He did take quite an interest in me. He really thought I liked it here, that I did not care for my freedom. He asked me if I'd take some medicine if he brought it to me. I said I would, so he brought me some anti-autotox and some pills. Then, Doctor Wilson had already ordered me Brewer's yeast. At first, I would not take it, for I'm a little afraid of the people, and I have a good right. For when I came to the department, they said that they were in my intestinal tract. Later, another said that they were in the muscles of my bowels, and latterly they thought of the gallbladder. I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, "There she is, the kidnapped woman." Doctor Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Doctor William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. In mid-July 1909, Judge Mitchell Erlinger, of the New York Supreme Court, believing Mallon remained a danger to society, dismissed her petition for release, and ordered her back to North Brother Island. But seven months later, in February of 1910. Ernst J. Lettery, the city's new health commissioner, took pity on Mary and released her on the promise that she would check in with the health department every three months and never again work as a cook. Mary immediately disappeared. She worked for a time as a laundress, but could not earn the same wages that she had as a cook. None of the other limited range of domestic jobs available to women in 1910 paid as well as cooking, and working conditions for laundresses and factory workers were terrible. For the next five years, Mary worked as a cook under assumed names, like Marie Breshoff and Mary Brown. But now, the two main employment agencies that placed cooks in wealthy households. Mrs. Stricker's and Mrs. Seely's were well aware of Typhoid Mary, and knew her on sight. So instead, Mary found work in restaurants, hotels, and hospitals, exposing even larger numbers of people to typhoid. She worked in a Broadway restaurant, a hotel in Southampton, an inn in Huntington, a hotel in New Jersey, and a sanatorium. Spreading typhoid all along the way, 
approximately 84 cases are attributed to Mary Mallon. But George Soper believed that the number could be far greater. Perhaps Mary believed that she could work again as a cook if she kept up with her hygiene. Or perhaps, despite years of testing confirming that she had typhoid, Mary was still in denial. In 1915, George received a call from Dr. Edward B. Cragen, head obstetrician and gynecologist at the Sloan Hospital for Women, asking him to come to the hospital immediately. A typhoid epidemic had struck the hospital and 20 staff members had fallen ill. Then Dr. Cragen told George that the other servants had jokingly nicknamed the cook Typhoid Mary. He handed George Soper a letter. George immediately recognized Mary's description and handwriting. This time, when the health department came, Mary didn't put up a fight. Mary Mallon was taken back to her cottage on North Brother Island, where she would live out the last 23 years of her life in quarantine. She never again tried to escape. Mary was now about 48 years of age, and a good deal heavier than she was when she slipped through a kitchen full of servants, jumped the back fence, and put up a fight with strong young policemen. George Soper recalled. She was as strong as ever, but she had lost something of that remarkable energy and activity which had characterized her young days and urged her forward to meet undaunted whatever situation the world presented to her. The city provided Mary with the cottage and a steady supply of food for free. Now that she was no longer considered a flight risk, Mary was even allowed to come and go as she pleased and made regular visits to the mainland to shop and walk around the city. On North Brother Island, the city afforded her a comfortable place to live, a place where she could cook and sleep and read to her heart's content. Her old age was provided for. There was a good hospital with doctors nearby. She became a privileged guest of the city. Nobody ever talked to her about anything she did not want to talk about. She announced that her past life was a closed incident, and nobody bothered her about it. When a nurse once attempted to ask Mary about her past love affairs, Mary silenced her with her signature glare. On Christmas morning, 1932, a man came to Mary's cottage to deliver something and found her paralyzed on the floor. She had suffered a stroke. Mary Mallon spent the last six years of her life in the hospital, unable to walk, and died on November 11, 1938. George Soper dug into Mary Mallon's personal life, but never found any relatives in America or her native Ireland, and Mary never mentioned anyone. In her total of 26 years on the island, she never once sent for anyone when she was sick or in trouble, and no one came forward after her death to claim the small amount of money that she left behind. Nine people attended Mary's funeral at St. Luke's Roman Catholic Church on 138th Street. She was interred at St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. 
no one was present at her burial. This episode of Murder Minute was recorded in isolation in the narrator's apartment in Los Angeles. Don't be a typhoid Mary. Please practice social distancing during this coronavirus outbreak. Remember, just because you're young and healthy doesn't mean you're not a carrier. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.